Not all biological parents are disciple makers, and not all disciple makers are biological parents. And the nuclear family is the foundation of the gospel. All this and more as we begin our year of the family. I'm Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What podcast. So I don't typically do this. Um, I don't typically teach topically. Um, generally, the what I try to do is... Um, try to do a passage of Scripture and work all the way through the passage of Scripture. Did I copy on both sides? Yeah, it should just be one side. It should just be one page. So the, yeah, I guess you guys can share one, one side for each of you. I don't know why it did that. I just hit copy. Anyway, um, yeah, it's the same thing on both sides. The, uh, but typically what we'll do is we usually take a passage of Scripture and we work all the way through it because... One of the things that we are trying to do in here is um, we get good. There's three different kinds of teaching, right? There's ex, there's exegetical teaching, which is where which is what we do in here, where you go through a passage of scripture and you try to pull all of the truth out of it that you can. You're you're, you're training not only yourself how to read it, but also you're training others as you work through it how to also read it themselves and how to process the truth and work through one passage of scripture because. Um, scripture does have a meaning, right? Uh, the other, the second type is exegetical preaching. That's what you hear on a Sunday morning with Pastor Michael. There's typically a takeaway. Um, there's some call to action at the end, and you're gonna you're gonna hear something that's convicting. There's gonna be clear points. There's gonna be illustrations. You take that truth and then you apply it to your life, and then you move on. Um, and then there is what's called a devotional type teaching, where you sit there and you share in a group. The, the challenge is that in, in, a, in a group as large as ours, to do a devotional type, sharing type thing, there's a, there's a, there, it has some strength there because we can build some relationship. But one of the challenges is if we're not focused on making sure that we are digging through the richness of God's Word accurately, that can lead us into that really scary place of feelings. And I really feel like God would do this, or I feel like God would be this way. And um, there's a there's a temptation, almost a, a a trap that we've got to be careful of that we don't fall into heresy where we start making assumptions about God apart from God's word. So that's one of the reasons why we don't do that in here. This year is going to be um, the year for the family for us. Um, and so last year we did the year with Solomon. This year we're going to do things about family. We're going to go through over the next uh, eight or nine weeks. We'll do. Uh, roles in the family and what the Bible says about each individual member of the family, um, extended family, parents, our fathers and, and wives, and our fathers and husbands, uh, wives and mothers, uh, children, extended family, close friends, all that stuff. We're going to look at all those things. And then, um, and then also we're going to do a series on infertility. We're going to look at what the Bible says about that. There's five different couples in the Bible that, um, that speak to that. There's some things that we can learn about God's character through that, and so we're going to look at that later this spring. Um, so this morning we're going to start with kind of a, a bird's eye view, uh, and there's going to be a lot of scriptures. What I've done is I've tried to put the scriptures that I'm going to read and, and mention here in that outline so that if you want to go back and read them, you can. I'm trying to uh, save you from wearing out your wrists as you're trying to keep notes and, and uh, follow along with me so that you can absorb more and not be trying to frantically just copy things down. So first, we'll start with the significance of the family. So what is the family? Uh, in order for us to understand what we're doing, we've got to understand why we're, why we're even here. Okay, so if I can get this sword. 
as it works. It doesn't work. Perfect. Awesome. Slides aren't working. Stand by. Today is just a day of challenges, I think. There we go. All right, significance of the family. The first thing is that um, God created the family for symbolism. There's a lot of symbolism in Scripture about um, what the family is for. It's a picture of God's love and character as he displayed his sacrificial love uh, and infinite love for us. So if you think about what God has done for us in providing uh, Jesus and providing a way to redeem us, all those things is all those things are illustrated in Scripture um, and, and in the family. Um, I also saw, uh, as I was doing some research, I thought it was interesting, one author put it this way, that even the, even the process of having a child where you have a mother and a father that come together to create a, a, uh, a separate life that is both a part of them and something independent is a picture of the Trinity, which I thought was interesting. Um, the next part of, of uh, significance is salvation, the source of God's testimony to the world and His love through the obedience of parents and children uh, shows also a picture of how we are saved. So the family not only is symbolic of God's love and His character, but it also is a picture of salvation. Um, it also is uh, a training ground for us. So sanctification, or the process of becoming more like God, being set apart, we do that within the, within the, the construct of the family, right? You get two sinful people together, and they irritate each other. There's natural contention, there's natural friction between two sinful people, and God uses that friction to draw us closer to Him. The idea is, like what we have talked about before, you have, you got the triangle, you got the God triangle, where you have, uh, you have the woman over here, and the man over here, and as they get closer to God, what happens is they grow closer together. And so, the process of sanctification is God taking two sinful people creating friction and tension, they both have to humble themselves to stay right with each other. And in the process of that humility, just like in Philippians 2, it says that, that Jesus was the example of humility, how, how he made himself of no reputation. He laid aside the prerogatives of being God, and he humbled himself to be a servant. In the same way that God says that what he does is he elevates Jesus in that state of humility, he does the same thing for us in our relationship with each other. So you have, the, you have the husband and the wife, and as they humble themselves and they work out these gradual issues, they're going to get closer to God. Now, the, the, uh, the challenge for us always is to, be live, is to be living in this humble mindset because the moment we start holding on to pride, the moment our marriages become divided. And we can see this manifest itself in, in uh, relationships with people in marriages that aren't healthy later on in life. Uh, and this also takes place with, fa- with uh, children, too, along the way. The fourth uh, way that uh, family is significant is through satisfaction. Um, Jesus said in, uh, in Matthew 22 that the greatest commandment of all is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. All throughout Scripture, there is this picture of sacrifice being the fulfilling way that God has intended for us to live. And we do that by sacrificing ourselves for our family. We sacrifice our a husband sacrifice himself for his wife and for his children. The wife sacrifices herself for her husband and her children. The children sacrifice themselves for their parents. And through the process of 
sacrificing ourselves, we can, uh, we can know who God is. And in fact, in Philippians, the last part of Philippians chapter 1, we'll look at this here in a second. Um, you okay? Oh. Okay, we got it. Um, the, uh, but in the process of, of humility and this uh, sacrificing ourselves, it leads to great contentment. So family does that as well. So first, let's talk about uh, symbolism. Symbolism in the nuclear family. Okay, one of the things that is important for us to remember is that the nuclear family is the arena that God uses to prove um, who he is through fulfilling covenants. All throughout the, the Old Testament, the covenants that God made, they weren't made to individuals. They were made to families, always. In fact, God doesn't give Adam his covenant until after Eve has already been presented to him. So the nuclear family, the husband and wife, and then later on children, um, this is how God has always been promising things. Um, if you have your Bible, turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we, we've studied this passage before, um, back in 2019, I think it was, 2020. Um, we were doing our series on uh, marriage. But in Ephesians 5, Ephesians 4 and 5, uh, the Apostle Paul is teaching about humility and about uh, submission. Submission is a naughty word in our generation because we're all supposed to be independent. And one of the things that's important about Ephesians is, is that in Ephesus, um, it was the home of one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, which was the temple of the goddess Artemis or Diana, okay, the goddess of the moon, the goddess of, they say the goddess of love, but she more was the goddess of war. And in, in Ephesus, there was a, uh, a strong subculture. Uh, in fact, it was believed back in the ancient world that, uh, that Ephesus was founded by the Amazons. So there was this strong uh, feminist, anti-masculine, anti-male culture within Ephesus. So if you look at the book of Ephesians and you look at First and Second Timothy, where Paul is writing to his protege, who's one of the pastors at Ephesus, um, we start to see language about gender roles and how we're supposed to work together, how God intended for things to work together. And so all through Ephesians chapter 4, he's talking about how we need to be putting on the new man, how uh, there is a, there's a method and a way for God in, that God intended for us to be able to live and to thrive in relationships. And he uses this idea of submission. And he talks about not grieving the Holy Spirit, which is to have a divisive uh, mindset. Then he says to walk in love. But the, the culmination of chapter 5 in Ephesians is um, he talks about marriage. So look at this. He says, uh, starting in verse 22, he says, Wives, subject, your, uh, subject yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives um, as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does, also does the church, because we are parts of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, 
As for you, individually, each husband is to love his own wife the same as himself, and the wife must see that, that she respects her husband. So as we uh, think about wives and, and uh, mothers and fathers and husbands, we need to... Okay, I'm all messed up here. Sorry. I'm just going to leave it there. Um, wives and mothers... They show that their, their role in displaying God's glory is through submission and through stewardship. Most of the time, our wives, they have the gift of multitasking and their brains never shut off. Right? Ladies, can I get an amen? You never have a chance to just stop thinking. And to us men, it can be annoying sometimes. Like, will you just stop worrying about that? I can't stop worrying about that. It just continues no matter what I do. But part of that is how God has gifted you and to fulfill your role within the marriage. Because a steward is someone who knows their business. A steward is someone who manages their affairs and does things comprehensively. Now, for husbands and fathers, our role, according to Ephesians 5, is to sacrifice and to provide for our family. And we do that by sacrificing our time, sacrificing our dreams, sacrificing our ambition, sacrificing our independence, all of those things, and the picture is that you have, at the end of the day, you've got two sides of the coin that, that, that illustrates who God is and who Jesus was, okay? You have, for the woman, you have the submission of, of Jesus to the Father and the will of the Father. This is the picture of the woman. And on the other side, you have the picture of the man, who is a picture of Jesus' sacrifice in his own submission, so by both people submitting to God's will, what happens is that both parts of, the, of the, the, the amazing parts about Jesus are put on display to the world. I die, she lives. She submits, she lives. All of that is within the picture. Now children, children, they display the glory of God through obedience and submission, the same thing that happened with Jesus. So in Luke 2.52 Jesus is, uh, this is the end of the story of him being found at the temple. His parents rush back to find him, and his mom says, where were you? I was worried sick. And he says, didn't you know I would be about my father's business? But then it says at the end of Luke chapter 2 that he went home with them, and in verse 52 it says, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and people. The idea here is that this communicated at the last part of Luke chapter 2 is that Jesus submitted himself to their leadership. And he grew. He learned from them. The, one of the pictures of, of the family that's displayed through our children is as they are learning to obey, as they're learning to respect authority, as we sacrifice for them, we do so in a godly way so that they can have a proper understanding of who God is. God's not someone who is vindictive and only gives us good things if we are uh, nice. God's not abusive. God is not, um, he's not spiteful. But as we teach our children how to learn and to how to obey us, we've got to remember that we're teaching them how to obey and learn from God. So the process of a, ch of a child, not only does it, do, are we uh, putting on display who God is uh, and who Jesus was through our children and by instructing them, but they also are putting the gospel on display by how they obey. So the culture of our family is important because it's going to be determined by that. Turn over to Titus chapter 2. And, and Titus, Titus is the other, um, Paul's other protege. You had Timothy and you had Titus. So he sent Timothy to Ephesus, but then he sent Titus to Crete. 
Crete is a little bitty island uh, in the Mediterranean Ocean. Um, it is, uh, even to this day, to call someone a Cretan is a... Um, is a is not a good thing, and so these people were uh, very um, just unruly. And in Titus chapter two, Paul gives us some guidance about um, older older believers, and we can look at this uh, through the lens of of understanding the context of grandparents. What role do grandparents play in the life of your family? Starting in verse one of chapter two of Titus, he says, "But as for you, proclaim the things which are fitting for sound doctrine." Older men be are, um, are to be temperate, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious, gossips, or enslaved uh, to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond which which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about about us. Um, we see in this uh, there, there's multiple lessons within each of these passages of scripture. We don't have time for this morning, but look at the way that the relationship between the older women and the younger women, and the older men and the younger men are displayed here. That um, there's a responsibility that comes with old age. There is a there's a, a a real mindset. If you're not careful, as your children are little, you think, man, one day when these when these little suckers are out of the house, I'll be able to do whatever I want again, um, which is not a uh, it's not a godly perspective. We are always going to be influencing our family. We are always going to be stewards of others, and uh, the retirement mindset of American culture. That I'm going to do my 30 years. I'm going to I'm going to retire and I'm going to go have fun and play around and do what I, do whatever I want. That is not a biblical perspective. We are always going to be responsible for investing in others. And the other thing about this too that we have to remember is that our job is to make disciples. I heard an older gentleman tell me one time that um, God has not called us to raise good kids. God has called us to raise godly adults. And that's not just true for biological families. There are some people who are biological parents who are not disciple makers. There are a lot of disciple makers who are not biological parents. Just because you have procreated doesn't mean that you have some special place in the kingdom of God. The job is the same. No matter what, you are always to be a disciple maker no matter what. And that's what this picture in Titus tells us, is that we need to remember that we have a job to do even when we are in our old age, right? It's not just about the, the, the gut. Let me put it this way. When you're young and you're starting out, especially when you have little children, it is easy to think that once you get through this season, the hardship is very real, the difficulty is very real. And what that does is that causes you to cling to God and to pursue Him just for your own sanity. But the temptation as your children get older, I can attest to this, is that the challenges, all they become different, they're not as immediate all the time. And what happens is the temptation is we have, we have a temptation to hold on to the old lessons of the past, the old uh, successes of the past, the old challenges of the past, and we think that that validates our disobedience in the present moment. And that's not the way that it should be. We have to remember that this is a lifelong pursuit. 
And it doesn't matter if our children are 3 or 35, we have a responsibility to invest in God's family. And that leads to the, to the, to the final piece where uh, about the church family, right? Uh, turn over to Galatians chapter 6. The church family, extended family, close friends, all of those things, the purpose of those relationships within the context of our families is uh, accountability and about encouragement. In Galatians 5 and 6, Paul is writing to uh, the, the church in Galatia. Now, Galatia is a region. It's the northern part of the Baltic states, uh, in essence. Um, and this was, by and large, an undeveloped, uneducated, um, not, a, not, a very, uh, not a very cultured environment. And so Paul is trying to convince the Galatians and tell them that there are better ways for us to be able to live and not just be chasing all of the things that we want to do for our own pleasure. And so in Galatians 5, we see the, the language about the fruits of the Spirit as opposed to the fruits of the flesh. And so in Galatians chapter 6, the first 10 verses, he talks about the, the, the need for us to hold each other accountable. Look at in verse 1, he says, But as for you, proclaim the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are temperate, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in person. Oh, I'm sorry. That's wrong. I'm reading my notes here, and that's from Titus. Okay, Galatians 1. Brethren, verse 1. Brethren, if, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you are uh, you who are spiritual, restore such a, such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For if he sows unto his flesh, he will of the flesh reap corruption. But if, uh, but if he sows unto the Spirit, he will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. The idea here is that we're, we're called to hold each other accountable to live in community. right? The, if, you're, if you're wondering, how do my friends, uh, my extended family, how do, how do my, uh, my close acquaintances, how do they fit into this whole picture here of making disciples? They're there on purpose to hold us accountable. We're in their lives to hold them accountable. It says that if you see someone who has fallen or been overtaken by a sin, this is someone who has been lazy in their life, in their, in their discipline. They have not been chasing Jesus. And so they find themselves in a tough spot, a spot that, that has produced a sinful part in their life that is, that is producing bad consequences. He says, you who are spiritual, go and get that person with a, with a spirit of gentleness. The idea here is to not go up to somebody and say, you know, condescendingly, hey, I notice you're having a hard time drinking. We need to figure this out because you're being a dirty, rotten sinner and I'm better than you. Like, that's not how this works. What he's saying is that, is that you got to be careful that you don't, in your own pride, elevate yourself above that other person. Be gentle. Be gentle. Come alongside that person. The, the language here, where he says, you who are spiritual, restore such a person. That word is a, a medical term that, that is also used for uh, the process of setting a broken bone. You go and you do it. You do it quickly. But then notice that he says that we're supposed to bear each other, bear one another's burdens. The idea is I'm watching out for you. You're watching out for me. And in the same way, 
with our children, we have that same responsibility. Now, it's not for me to go and parent someone else's little child if I'm not close to them. But if I'm close enough in proximity to that family, to, that, to where that child knows my voice, you know full and well that I'm going to step in if they're in danger. Same thing if close friends see my children in danger, they need to step in. Um, it was funny. We, we were at Life Group years ago, actually. And um, many of you have met Evelyn, right? Little Evelyn Hollibaugh, right? And uh, we're at Life Group, and the children are playing in the living room. All the children are at, all, at Life Group with us. And I see her across the room standing on top of the armrest of the couch at the annual's house. And I know what's going on inside her mind. She's thinking, I'm about to jump off of this thing. And with, before I could even stop myself, the dad voice came out. Evelyn Alice, she looked at me. It was funny. Stephen and I really sound similar. Whatever we talk to the kids, it's kind of creepy, actually. Um, but uh, I said her name. She looked up at me, and Stephen looked at me, and Megan looked at me, and Lindsay looked at me, and I looked at them, and we're pointing at each other like, what's going on? And then, like, she's, she's about to hurt herself, right? The idea is that we have a responsibility in our community to, to know that we're all in the business of making disciples, and if people are close to you, those people who, who care about you, they have a role to play in the lives of your children, in the lives of your marriage, in the lives of your grandparents, and the, your children's grandparents. All of this is included. So um, it's important for us to remember that, that God has, um, he's done this on purpose. Okay, flip back to Genesis chapter 1. Let's spend some time there. There's some great uh, lessons that we can learn from Genesis and how God laid out the foundation of the world. In Genesis chapter 1, uh, through the second and third chapters, we see not only the creation of man, but also the creation of woman, and also the establishment of the family. We can see um, God's covenant with them and, and how all of this has played out. So starting in verse 26, let's look at how God, God observes his creation. Verse 26, he says, Then God said, Let us make hum- mankind in our own image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the, all the earth, and every tree which, is, which has fruit yielded seed, yielding seed, it shall be food for you, and every animal of the earth, on every, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw that he, what he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Chapter 2, verse 1, And so the heavens and the earth were completed in all their heavenly lights. Uh, God gives a couple of commands here to the man and the woman. He says, first, to be fruitful and multiply. Um, it does mean to reproduce physically with children. However, the deeper principle here is that it's not just about having biological children. Any person with the right hardware can make children. What he's saying here is be fruitful and multiply in the earth. Spread this fellowship that you have with me multiply it. Make it abundant. He's talking about disciple making. He's not just talking about having children. 
He's saying, I want you to take the gift that we have in our fellowship together, and I want you to multiply it. One of the, one of the, the, the incredible blessings of having a child is that you have the opportunity to train them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, that they get to see and experience your walk with Christ as they live out life with you. That's an amazing part about being a parent, about being a, a leader in your home, whether as a husband or as a wife. Because it's like, I think Frederick Douglass, who's the one who said it's easier to, to, uh, to raise good children than to fix broken men. The idea here is that God has given us an opportunity to, to raise disciples from infancy before sin has a, has a chance to tarnish them or to, to wind them up. Um, he says to fill the earth. The goal here since the beginning was to produce uh, on earth, uh, just fill it up with God's children, right? This is why uh, he says later on in, in Genesis chapter 2 that a, that a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife. The idea is that we bring up a child, or we disciple someone so that they can go and they can spread godliness, that they can take this godly culture that we've established in our home and it can be reproduced. That we're not just, you know, raising the kids until they, until they can get out of the house. We're not just discipling people just to have companionship. The idea is that every single one of these arrows is meant to be shot, every single one. Whether it's a disciple a, a, a child, or whether it's someone who's close to us. One of the primary offenses of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 is that they said, you know what, this is after the flood. We're going to build a monument to ourselves, and we're going to make a city. God says, go out, and they stay put. They decide that they're going to try to avoid getting killed again in the flood. They reject his covenant with Noah, and they build a tall tower to try to avoid any floodwaters that might come in the future. And as a result, God confuses their language. He says that they're supposed to subdue it. In uh, verse 28 of chapter 1, God gives the command to subdue and to rule over creation. These words literally mean to bring into bondage and to have dominion over. What God's saying here is that creation has been made uh, and been organized uh, by man to force it into order. Think about what we do as human beings. We take a a patch of wilderness and we organize it. We take a patch of dirt and we turn it into a garden. We take a room that's disheveled and we bring it into order. We, take, uh, we naturally fix things. We do. We do this every single day when we make breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We take ingredients and we organize them every single time. Because we, are, uh, we have dominion over creation. God's given us this, this divine authority and responsibility to have dominion over the earth. And so he says to subdue it. This means to rule and to, uh, to bring into bondage and to have dominion. Um, the, I read a book a few years ago called Sons of Dust by a guy named Chris Clemenshire. Um, and uh, in the book, it's fascinating because he makes the argument that the whole premise of the book is looking at Adam's life before the fall in the garden and the language of Genesis 1 and 2. And uh, in the book, he, he describes how uh, the create, creation is not a... Um, it's not just a wilderness to be explored. It's a laboratory. It's a laboratory for human beings, for man, to practice dominion. And the, and the idea is this, that by, as we express ourselves in dominion, we begin to understand God's dominion and how he has control, how he is the one who organizes things out of chaos. God invites us to be part of what he's doing. 
Um, we also have dominion over animals. That includes hunting and eating them. Uh, Genesis chapter 9 talks about that after the flood. Um, the gospel purpose of the family, uh, we saw in, in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, for marriage is to illustrate the gospel to the world. Marriage is God's way of bringing the natural beauty of Eden to all of creation. Think about this. Think about your marriage and your relationship with each, with each other. You have, one way to say this is that you have, the, you have the divine privilege of putting the gospel on display. Okay? That's language that we use all the time. But think about it this way. Your marriage is actually God's gift to you to bring the Garden of Eden to the world. What is the most significant thing about the Garden of Eden? It wasn't that they had no sin. It's that they had an unfiltered, incredible relationship with God. That is the picture of our marriages, that we have the divine privilege of being able to put the Garden of Eden wherever we are. Because our marriage is meant to be an illustration. Okay, now salvation... I'm just going to do this. These are all the covenants that God has made with us throughout history. We'll do these very quickly. So um, every covenant, uh, marriage or family is, as a picture of salvation, every covenant that's, that God's made has been with a family. So first it was with Adam and Eve. Uh, God promises that his seed or Jesus uh, through the woman is, is going to bruise the head of the devil. In Genesis 3.15 he says, And I will make enemies of you and the woman and of your offspring and of her, descent, of her descendant, and he shall bruise your heel and, and uh, you shall bruise him on his heel. Oh, sorry, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise him on his heel. After that promise, what's interesting in, uh, in Genesis 3, verse 20, this is where Adam gives her her name. So they, they fall, they're separated from God, and God makes this covenant with Eve. Notice he's not talking to Adam, he's talking to Eve and the serpent. And uh, it's not until after this that, that Adam changes her name and names her Eve. Uh, Eve literally means hope. So in other words, Adam recognized, I've messed this all up, but she is the hope. Then there's the, the covenant with Noah and his family in Genesis chapters 8 and 9. God promises that he's not going to destroy every living thing again, and he gives the rainbow as a sign for him. Um, it's important to remember that he makes this promise not just to Noah, but also to his family. In, in uh, Genesis 9, 11 through 13, it says, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be eliminated by the waters of a flood, nor shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you, every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall serve as a sign of a covenant between me and, and the earth. See, God continues to make promises. Then he moves on to the, the uh, covenant with Abraham and his family, where he promises that there's going to be many nations that are going to be blessed through him. Now, we've got to remember, if we look back through the filter of the, Old, of the New Testament, we can see that the promise that God makes to, to Adam and to Eve, the promise that he makes to Noah, the promise that he makes to Abraham and to Israel and to David, all of this stuff passes through this filter. He's not talking about a biological family. He's talking about a heritage of faith. Now, this goes back to this idea that not all biological parents are disciple makers, and not all disciple makers are biological parents. There's a lot of people who are grafted into God's story that have no DNA shared with Abraham. So think about the, the, the Gentiles that are part of Jesus' lineage. You have Rahab, 
the, the prostitute from um, Jericho. You have Ruth, the Moabite. Her, her ancestors are Lot, who uh, slept with his daughter and had an incestuous child, and that is the, that's the, the father of the people of Moab. These are people who don't share in this testimony at all other than that they are simply were people of faith. And so think about this, about the promise that God made Abraham in Genesis 17. He says, now when Abraham was 99 years old, you're never old enough. You're never, never too old to have a kid, right? When Abraham was 99 years old, the, old uh, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. Notice he doesn't just say one nation. Verse 5, No longer shall you be named Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. So look at this. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. He's talking about people who are going to be part of this shared heritage of faith. He says, I'm going to make nations of you. How many nations are there in the world who have people who profess to be followers of Christ? They are our family, multiple nations. He says, I will make kings of you. Romans 8 says that we are co-heirs with Christ, that we are sons and daughters of heaven, that we are kings and queens of heaven. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants. He's talking about us there. He's talking about those who share in this heritage of faith. So he keeps continuing to make these promises. God makes the promise with, with Israel and his family. And he promises that there's going to, uh, that he's going to continue this. Thing. He, he, he promises Israel that he's going to make him a kingdom of priests. Look at uh, in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. I know I'm moving fast here, so forgive me. Verse 5, he says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. The idea is that not only are we kings and queens, but we also are a generation of priests. We're a family of priests. Our job, the job of a priest is to connect the regular person to God. The idea here is that we get to do this. Like this, this is our primary function. And then he makes the promise with David. This is incredible because God promises that through David, through his family, uh, through his heritage of faith, that he's going to establish an eternal kingdom that's going to last forever. And finally, he gets to Jesus, the, the covenant. Jesus, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the covenants. And it's most significant in Jeremiah chapter 31 because he puts a fine point on it through the prophet. He says this, he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob, house of Judah, not like the covenant uh, which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant with which they broke, although I was a husband to them, Ephesians 5, language here, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their heart. I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and their sin and I will no longer remember. 
He's talking about us. He's talking about the heritage that we have as disciple makers, that we have this divine privilege of, of holding the Holy Spirit within ourselves and being able to read his word and understand it. Jesus said that when I go away, I'm going to give you the teacher, and the teacher is going to teach you all truth. He's talking about now. This is a prophecy for right now. So, and there's just so much here. I've got to keep moving. Oh, all right. Fourth, sanctification. So sanctification is marriage is uh, how God gives us an opportunity to obey his word. There's a couple of things here that we uh, should remember. How many of you have ever had a disagreement with your significant other? That's everybody in the room. Okay. Um, the longer your marriage, you realize that there are going to be seasons where one of you is walking with God and one of you is not. That is just a reality of it. Um, and one of the beautiful things about this picture is that God allows us, in, when the man is weak, the woman holds things together. And when the woman is weak, the man holds things together. And God uses our relationship to tether us to him. It's one of the one of the great privileges of being married is that we have this built in um, built in partner. Turn over to First Corinthians chapter seven. First Corinthians is uh, the Corinthian church was another church that was just rife with um, disagreements and fleshiness. I mean, it's it's really bad in Corinth. It is just really bad. There's a dude sleeping with his mother-in-law. There's um, people are are out of control. It's just it's a hot mess, huge hot mess. And so Paul writes this marriage, writes this letter to them. He writes several letters, actually. We have two of the four that he wrote. Um, and he talks about, in chapter 7, he talks about the principles of, of living and being in marriage and, and uh, how we deal with conflict. And beginning in verse 10, he begins to talk about uh, these divisions between marriage. Like, what if one of you is a believer and one of you is not a believer? He's going to talk about confidence in the, in the position that we're in. Starting in verse, verse 10, he says, Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is to not divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if, the, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, she is willing, uh, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the un unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called, has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? The point of this is that what he's saying is that just because there are spiritual disagreements within the marriage, it doesn't mean that all is lost. He's saying that this picture here of one spouse walking with God and the other not walking with God, even within the context of one, if one is an unbeliever, that doesn't give us license. Because what was happening here is that they were saying, oh, well, I got saved, so I guess I'm not bound to the secular marriage anymore. Oh, well, what about these kids that we have? Are these Christian kids? Are these pagan kids? Are we going to worship the temple of Zeus? Are we going to worship in the synagogue? What are we going to do here? And the idea here is that God has tethered us together, and this idea of, of friction working itself out produces sanctification. Um, 
there's a natural part of conflict resolution that happens within marriage. This, this also produces sanctification, this hum- humility that we talked about before. Um, there are, uh, there's lessons here, opportunities for us to practice things in Scripture, like, for instance, Proverbs 18.21 is one of the most significant passages in the Bible. It says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. We have to be disciplined about the words that we say and how we say it. If you've been married for any length of time, you've realized that. You've said things to your spouse in anger, and you've been like, that was stupid. Why did I say that? I was, just being, I was being vengeful and angry and unjust, and I'm being a turd. What am I doing? The idea here is that we learn how to, how to communicate. In the same way, God's giving us an opportunity to be able to submit ourselves. Um, through introspection, Matthew 7, 1 through 6, talks about the process of taking the beam out of your eye so that you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is true in marriage as well. It's easy for us to, to count all of the ways that they are, are messing up. Ladies, you do this better than anyone, keeping track of all the ways that we have fallen short. And honestly, your guy is not keeping track because he, quite frankly, doesn't care. Keep no record of wrongs. Um, but Matthew chapter 6 tells us that we need to be careful how we judge others because the same measure is going to be used against us. You're going to be legalist with your husband? You're going to be legalist with your wife? Guess what? When it comes time to give an account to the Lord, guess who is going to be legalist? You set the standard by which you are judged. And through the process of that, in, in, the, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, he says, don't take this holy thing, this, this incredible thing, this clear conscience and this divine perspective and throw it against something, someone who's going to take it for granted. <clears throat> we also learn uh, how to be humble and teachable. Ephesians 4 talks about that. And uh, how to have healthy conflict resolution in Matthew 18. Flip over to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians is... Uh, is an incredible picture of humility because uh, God, through His Word, He gives us some good descriptions about how we can handle um, or what's at stake, rather. Philippians chapter 1, He talks about this idea of displaying our unity and what's at stake. Um, it's easy for us to just roll this off our tongue. Yeah, the man's supposed to die because he's supposed to be like Jesus. The woman, she's supposed to submit because she's supposed to be like Jesus. Okay, that's all great. But what does this actually look like in practicality? He starts off, uh, Paul is talking about how um, the, he loves the Philippians. He loves them so much because when no one else had faith in him, they did. They sent him resources. They sent him money for his first missionary journey when nobody else would give him resources. And he's got a special place in his heart for them because they get it. And he's talking about they were, they were becoming ashamed that they were um, being uh, persecuted, and they were being dejected, and they were being mocked. And he talks about in the first chapter, he talks about how he's excited that God has allowed him to wear chains because it's even caused some of Caesar's royal guard to pay attention to the gospel. He says, this is, this is the beautiful part about what God's doing, that he makes us humble so that he can put his greatness on display. So looking at verse 27, he says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. 
and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now you hear is in me. He's saying, you saw this in my life. You knew this was part of the package. This is the beautiful part. So then he continues in one of the most incredible passages of Scripture, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if there is comfort of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not out only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. He's talking about marriage. Hello. Talking about relationships. And then he continues in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus also, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The idea here is that our marriages should look like this, that we display through our unity the amazing promise of the gospel. We put Jesus on display. That is not a light thing. When you're trying to decide what you're, what you're supposed to do, if you're supposed to be humble or you're supposed to uh, stand your ground with your spouse, this does not mean dig in. This means understand that if they're not walking with Jesus, ladies, if your husband's not walking with Jesus, your job is to hold the line and to show unity because God's going to work on him. If he's a child of God, God's going to make him so miserable if you're being faithful that he's not going to be able to stand it. You cannot binge or break your husband's will. I'm telling you right now, you can't do it. He's going to dig in. It's going to happen. In the same way, husbands, you cannot dismiss your wives if they're not walking with Jesus. If they're being if they're embedding fear in their life, if they're if they're constantly anxious and worried, if they're not living by the truth, you abide. Let the Lord do what He does. Because the only way that you're going to have the patience to uh, withstand all of these waves of anxiety and, and difficulty is if you're abiding. In the same way, wives, the only way that you're going to deal with the stupidity of your husband and his stupid mistakes is if you're abiding. This is how this works and how we're sanctified. Lastly, sanctification or satisfaction. I know I'm running along, forgive me. Um, the last thing is, family is, is something that brings us satisfaction. And I'm not talking about a certain stage of family. I'm not talking about this false trajectory that you're not going to be satisfied unless you're married. You're not going to be satisfied unless you've got children. You're not going to be satisfied unless you've got grandchildren or whatever. I'm talking about just the basic practices that God has given us in His Word that, he's, that He says that He will bring us satisfaction. Ecclesiastes 12, we looked at this just, just a couple of weeks ago. The conclusion, when everything has been heard, is to fear God and to keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act of act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. The greatest commandments are, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love your neighbor, including your wife, as yourself.
The idea is that we are going to be satisfied. Jesus said, or in Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 8, verse 3, it says that God, uh, that man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that, that comes out of the mouth of God. The idea here is that you are going to be most satisfied when you are the most obedient. So in your marriages, if you're trying to figure out for your family, how do I get satisfaction? You're not going to find it in the job. You're not going to find it in the career. You're not going to find it even in the children. You're not going to find it in each other. You're not going to find it in your relationship with your parents or your grandparents. You're not going to find it in any other thing besides obedience to God. That is how you find satisfaction. You see, the process, though, of dying to yourself is first played out in the context of our family. And that's the, act, that's the, the process of dying. Philippians 4 says this, I know how to get along with a little, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going, uh, feel, being filled and going hungry, both on having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share in my difficulty. He says contentment comes from obedience. In 1 Timothy, he says this in chapter 6. He says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with a doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a sick craving for controversial questions and disputes about words, from which come envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of a depraved mind and deprived of truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied with by contentment. For we, have been, for we have brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food for, for and covering, we shall, have, we shall be content. The last thing I'll, I want to tell you is that um, this satisfaction that's displayed out in our families brings confidence with it. That we... we we are constantly looking for things that are going to uh, satisfy us, and it's because we're constantly trying to look and find things outside of what God's Word says. The idea is that we will not be satisfied unless we are completely obedient to Him. And we have to remember that we don't love God through affection. That's a byproduct. Our affection for God is a byproduct. We love God through our obedience. Our obedience is what leads to affection. Just like there's going to be moments in your family, if you haven't already had these already with your, with your spouse, you make a conscious decision to love them. You wake up in the morning, you have short words with each other, you leave to go to work, and you think about it all day. You make a conscious decision when you come home, we need to make this right. I need to make this right with you. The conscious decision to humble yourself is the thing that determines what you put on display in your family. We, oh, we, we make that conscious decision and it leads to affection. Sacrificing ourselves leads to affection. The thing that you are going to love the most is the thing that you sacrifice the most for. So I want to encourage, encourage you in this that I know that I gave you a lot this morning and we're going to dig into some of these things a little bit more in depth over the next several weeks. But this just scratches the surface. These, these passages are not exhaustive. So if you're thinking, if you're trying to consider and wrap your mind around, what does it actually mean to actually be in a family with this person that I said I want to be with for the rest of my life? There is so much that God wants to do in your relationship with your spouse. There is so much that God wants to do in your life, not just for the sake of 
the gospel because God has given you that person to teach you about him. And anything that you might think that, that you're missing, that perspective comes from ignorance of what God's word says. I want you guys to be fulfilled. I want you to be satisfied. I want you to be a symbol of the gospel. And I want you to understand that, that what God's given you through marriage is a gift. It really is. But we have to do it according to God's perception. Otherwise, we're always going to be chasing something else. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org. Come alive.